not to take away from any of the amazing people that we've had on the show before, Brian, but this week's episode with Derek Del Vadio, yeah, this this is the interview I've been most excited about personally. Right mm-hmm. uh, when you first uh, talked about Derek's work, one of the, th- the first things I did is I looked up a video that he did for Charlie's um, Charlie Melcher's thing of uh, future, future storytelling, yeah. right? And I never, I didn't know about Derek's work, but I watched that video and I watched that video over and over again. And I watched it because of what he talks about in it, and we can put it in the notes if anyone wants to see it. But if you just type in Derek's name and future storytelling, you'll see the video. Is what he talks about is how, you know, magic used to be about, you know, opening up people's eyes, right? And at some point, magic turned into tricks. Like, how do you, how do you trick people? And I watched that video and I watched it over and over. And I think you were still down at the conference and I was texting you. I was like, have you seen this? Do you see what he's talking about? This guy is talking about, he's talking, he's trying to diagnose the same type of problems that we're always talking about. Like what happened? When did stories go from this innate gift of survival information that human beings used to like move the species forward to how much popcorn can we sell? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. And so then I started getting really into Derek stuff. And then, and then you told me about his movie in and of itself, which I highly recommend. And you're like, it can't be overhyped. Yeah. And I was like, okay, okay, cool. And I tried to see it at this film festival thing. It sold out. I couldn't, I finally sat on, on Hulu and I, and I haven't been that impressed with a piece of work. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a time. I know. It just blew my mind. And then I got his book that just came out, A Moral Man. If you haven't read it, it's fantastic, which is more of like a biography. Long story short, Derek is operating at a whole different level than the vast majority of artists out there. And the fact that um, you guys have the kind of relationship that he would come on the show is massive. And so I'm just trying to set this up for the folks that maybe haven't seen Derek's work. Pay attention. This guy's special and what he's doing and where he's going. He, he's like... Uh, you use an example of uh, breaking the four minute mile that he just, he's breaking the four minute mile and you should be paying attention. So for you, why did you want Derek on the show? And what are some things that you think the audience should be looking for? Um, well, D- Derek, he's, you know, he's, he's a, he's a real thinker about what he does. Um, and, and I think as craftspeople, um, it's rare that you meet, somebody who thinks about the craft in a way that is similar. Um, and it's kind of like what you're saying, like he's trying to solve all the same problems we are, you know, like he knows some illusions and he's good at illusions. Calling him a magician isn't fair to what mm-hmm. he does. Um, unless you mean more than tricks, right? I mean, he's a magician in a very different way, um, in a bigger, broader sense. And which I love because people don't understand that uh, a magical experience, a transcendent experience can be designed. It doesn't just have to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you can design it, you can design it to happen. Um, and that it's this, this, his piece is well designed and he is an unbelievably thoughtful uh, creator of his work. And, um, and uh, uh, just uh, uh, like a lot of people I, I'm lucky enough to know and have on the show, just, a, just a, a sweet, cool human being on top of all of that. And I think that comes through in his work too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Here we go. Let's see what Derek has to say. Hello and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. 
In this episode, Brian is joined by writer, performer, and magician Derek Delgadio, creator of the cathartic theater show and Hulu special, In and of Itself. Derek shares how his mentors helped him see the importance of developing curiosity and why he believes vulnerability is the key to truly connecting with his audience. First of all, you don't like uh, to be called a magician, correct? No, I'm fine with that. I just, okay. it's, it's a matter of what, what we're talking about, I guess. Right. It, it changes, it changes the context uh, uh, of, of the conversation pretty quickly. Uh, so it just depends really. Right. Okay. Um, that makes sense. So, um, well, like for instance, when we make your card for the show, what should we say? Like uh, your title, what will your title be? I, it's up to you. I like, uh, you know, creator, okay. uh, artist, performer, writer. I don't know. I mean, magician is fine. Whatever you want. I, I, I've, I've stopped caring. Sure. It seems to be impossible to try to get people to call you anything other than what they want to call you. So. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, it's like, you, um, they can't, you know, it's hard for people to see past what they know, you know? And so, if they think I'm a magician, uh, they're not wrong for thinking that mm -hmm. I am, but the, you know, I don't know. It, it changes things. Cause like, like saying a magician wrote the book that I wrote doesn't really convey what that book is. Right. Or saying a magician made the show that I made doesn't really convey what that is. It's not, it's not fair to the work really. It's not me so much. It's just not fair to the work. Um, I get that. And so it just changes the context uh, around it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm never sense. introduced as a writer. When talking about my book, I'm never introduced as a writer. Oh, interesting. Ever. Never. It's not, we're here with writer Derek Delgadio who wrote a book. Right. We're here with magician Derek Delgadio who wrote a book. And I, I couldn't have written it as a magician. Like, <laughs> right, it's not right. possible. So, uh, well, you can write whatever you want. It seems like you occupy a space that people don't have a word for. That's the that was that was the goal, I guess. Right. Um, but here's 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 what I will say, and this is oh, this is one of the things I noticed. I, I would say is that I think we think of our jobs in the same way. Okay. Uh, and you can tell me if I'm wrong and tell me to take a hike, but this is what I think. When I, when I think about storytelling and the job of storytelling, um, and when I think about it in sort of tribal context, that person who was the storyteller for the tribe was almost always also the shaman. Yeah. Right? So they were the healer and the storyteller, but they were also the magician. Right. And those three jobs belong together. And I think once you take one out and pull it apart, it lessens that job. So if yeah. you're a storyteller without the magic, it doesn't quite work, something's wrong. If you're a storyteller without the healing, there's, you know, there's something wrong. And when you marry those things, you get something like what you got in your show. 
Yeah. Um, does that make sense to you? Am it I, does. I, I do. I do understand that it's not a uh, intentional or intellectual practice for me of like thinking about it that way. But I absolutely understand what, what you mean, and and uh, uh, I. I, I I do agree that all all of those components are what make something transcend into something else. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, that's what I, I strive for. Yeah, I, I was I don't know if you've read uh, much about uh, shamans and how they work and how they work. But I, I was reading a book once uh, about shamans because I was writing something. And they said something really interesting that the anthropologists who were studying the shamans saw that they used um, sleight of hand sometimes. And when they saw that, they decided, well, they're charlatans. Mm -hmm. From the shaman's perspective, what they were always trying to do was to, to um, open people's minds by showing them something that they thought was impossible. And it made them believe that the impossible was possible. You can heal from this disease. Right. Right. Uh, we know placebo can work for people. Right. right? So um, and I read I saw a thing about hypnotists where sometimes a hypnotist, when they're having a hard time hypnotizing a person, they can go through the stages, go through the like, as if the person is hypnotized and they will tell them the lights are dimming. Uh, hypnotically, like, oh, the light, you'll notice the lights dimming and then the, they'll actually dim the lights, the hypnotist. And when they do that, the person's like, I must be hypnotized. It makes them more susceptible to being hypnotized. They're less resistant. And so they were using, uh, shamans were using uh, illusion to get at a truth. Yeah. Which seems very much like what you do. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the goal for sure. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a lot of thoughts on that because I hadn't considered it that way. But yes, that, that is what I set out to do is use use illusions to point to greater truths. Mm -hmm. So as a, so you'd always been writing, correct? Oh, in your journal anyway, you'd always been writing. Do you yeah, I don't know what I'd call it writing, but definitely spilling out ideas and, and getting them, getting ideas on a page in some chicken scratch form or another. But um, yeah, I've, I've always tried to, to, to expel ideas, mm -hmm. certainly. So here's, here, here's my deal. So uh, because as a kid with dyslexia, I, I think this is one of the things that happens when you have dyslexia. Um, there, there are lots of things and I mention it all the time on the show. People are probably sick of it. But, but, but um, one of the things that happens is in order to understand things, you have to break them down. Okay. Break them down in these simple components, which allows me to teach. That's why I can teach because I had to break it down so I can understand it myself. Other people who are not dyslexic um, can feel things out. They can understand things intrinsically. Um, and not that dyslexics can't do that about some things. They a lot of things that are understood that way. But um, but you seem as if you go with your feelings, and then later intellectualize those feelings like to write them down in a book you had to intellectualize that stuff but it's your yeah. feelings leading you is that correct yeah i don't know that so much feelings that it is intuition of some sort or just uh uh 
following my gut. I mean, some of it's feeling certainly, but like, I don't want, I don't want to give the impression that I was like journaling my feelings about things. It was more just thoughts would occur to me and I would feel the need to feel the need to write them down. Sure. Or draw, um, them, or draw them if I needed to. Oh, okay. Uh, I, so I guess that's what I mean. Intuition, the, the, you know, these, these, your sort of instinctual reactions to things. Um, yeah noticing them and and often and honoring those things yeah honoring them is good good yeah honoring them is important to like and not not ignore them and not and and sit and think something is significant like there's so many things that i've written down that i believe is significant i don't know why i'll I'll even say like this is important i don't know why Mm -hmm. Um, and trusting that that it is important for a reason yeah um you know, it's funny, when I was writing my memoir, memoir, there was a scene when I was very young with my grandmother and I, I was like, I don't know why this has to go in the book, but it has to go in the book. I don't know why. Yeah. Once I put it in the book, it became a framework. Um, it's sort of like, I, now I can't take it out. Like it's a, it, that thread would undo the whole thing. Like it's this really interesting yeah. thing, but um, it was the same thing. I was trusting, honoring that feeling like, well, I wouldn't have it. It almost is like when you leave the house and you think I've forgotten something. Right. Pretty much have. Right. <laughs> but you don't know what it is until you leave and you're half a block away or whatever. Like, oh, it's this. Your, your body somehow knows these things or your brain knows them somewhere. And uh, yeah, you can learn how to honor that, um, that feeling and know that your body's telling you something or your yeah. brain is telling you something. Yeah. Um, so then how... Do you go about creating the, the show that you created? Is there, are there versions of the show that we've never seen as you developed it? You know, like a comic, a lot of times we'll work on the three minutes and then five and then, you know, 10 and then half an hour and, you know, um, and build up their set over time. Or is this, was this, almost fully formed as a thing yeah it was fully um fully formed in that the pieces the elements were all there the all of the um i mean it got better over time but the first time that i did the show was the first time that i did that i that any of the material came to life uh so there was no like try let's try this out and change it the next night it was more of a put it all out there, see what works and, and do that. And you can make minor adjustments, but it wasn't until like from LA to New York, there were changes. Um, uh, but a, a friend of mine saw it and his comment was uh, in New York. He says, it's twice as good. And I have no idea why. Okay. Uh, and so all of the changes were very minor, like subtle, the, the in-between moments or the, the, you know, the little rearranging of things here and there, um, the editing process, you know, and just kind of tightening and focusing and polishing rather than changing. But the the show got better, but it didn't, it, it you know, it was kind of what it was uh, and then just became a better version of that over time. Sure. That makes sense to me. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And um, how much did uh, Frank Oz help with shaping that? 
Uh, I mean, a lot because he was, you know, my eyes outside of me and could could tell me when I, you know, he's just telling me when it wasn't there, really. Mm -hmm. Not there yet. You know, I'd be like, how about now? And we're not there yet. And it was just that, you know, so that he 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 helped send, set the, you know, the benchmarks. And and so, like, even if I thought we were, I th you know, like, I, I would think that we were further along than we were. And he would, he, you know, he just has had so much more experience. He knows when a thing is really a thing and when it's not there yet. And so uh, my experience is obviously a lot less than his, um, but my standards are just as high. I just, right. as soon as I know that there's more, more mountain to be climbed, I'll climb it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he, he also was very conscious of not, not having it not be too intellectual. Uh, it was a very intellectual show at least the first iterations of it when I first started like it was all in my head not just in terms of how it manifested but how I performed it because it was like it was like riding a bicycle while building it at the same time and so I it was the performance was very heady like I was in my head because I had to think about so much and like the show wasn't in my bones yet so that like I still had everything in my head and, and it wasn't until New York when I had done the show and I had like that part, I understood I could go out there and do it physically, like literally had the ability to do that, uh, that we could focus on the internal narrative and uh, of myself in the audience. And that's a very nuanced exploration. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, that's where Frank really enjoys getting down to like the details of how to bring a thing to life and and to have it transcend from a show to something else which is what i always said i wanted and he was like okay i'll hold you to that mm -hmm. and so so he he helped you know in 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 that regard completely of, of helping it transcend to to be something else you know sure um, that now that gets me thinking about uh, mentors in your life, teachers in your life. Um, that's one similarity uh, between you and I. I think always oh. sort of looking for mentors and having. Okay. Uh, I, I had a really. I, I started working in film when I was a teenager because a guy who made local animated spots and things um, hired me because he thought. You know, it was a, almost like you in the magic store as a kid. It was the same exact thing uh, where I went in just to talk to him, actually, uh, just to see if I could see how films were made and get close to it. And he asked me, he invited me back and I went back. And after a while, he, he hired me um, and uh, still a good friend of mine. Um, and I don't know where I would be if he hadn't taken me in. I, you know, I, I didn't do well in school and, and I was also in um, bust to school and so there was a lot of racial stuff and it was not a pleasant environment for me right um and so my sort of escape from all of that was um that after school i would go and work on television commercials or whatever 
uh, which was great. And it saved me, I'm sure of it. Um, but I have always sort of found these sort of mentors um, and teachers. It seems like your life was very similar in that way. Mm-hmm. Some people don't look for mentors or don't have them or not lucky enough to find them. But you would have one kind of mentor for a while and then another one and then another one. Can you talk about the uh, was that on purpose? Was that not on purpose? Did that just happen? And what did those each of those mentors teach you that helped you become the person I'm talking to right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was a natural progression of, of how I was brought up of not having a father around. I think, you know, me looking for big brother programs was was a given. And uh, the first one I had was was uh, was with sleight of hand, and you know that is that is a a craft that really is best passed down and taught from one person to another. It's not you you can learn things from books or now there's obviously videos and tutorials and things like that, but it's really not the same. And you, I'm sure with anything, having that expertise and the hands-on experience from someone who's you know there to offer wisdom is really important and neil neil uh neil gammon said uh uh like a google search uh i'm gonna fuck this up but it was like a google search will come back with a thousand answers but a librarian will come back with the right one right yeah and that's that's exactly right yeah you know uh, it's like that that's that's what it is and and so i think i i started with that as far as like I was interested in the thing and it also happened to be like nice, safe guys who were really um, generous with their time and, and wisdom and knowledge. And, and then that just sort of became how I learned things. So I just, I, I learned that if you want to learn something, you find someone who's very good at it and you very respectfully learn from them and offer whatever you can in return, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, that just became an effective way of learning for me. And I also enjoy that sort of having, having some sort of relationship with the people that I learned from so that it's not just transactional, you know, yeah. uh, that that's like, I guess is an important difference for me is that I, the people that I, I love all of the people that I learned from yeah. and, and have relationships with them outside of the learning from them. Mm-hmm. I don't need to learn from them, you know, I can also just be with them. And that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's an important thing that like, I, I, I don't know why. Yeah. I guess I just, I, I picked that up from, from having mentors over the years and they've all um, broadened who I am and shaped me and helped me figure out the world. And, and, you know, these are people I call with questions uh, still and, and they're there for me. And so, but that's been a very important part of my development as a person and as an artist. And, and yeah, it shaped me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I was mentoring somebody once and um, what was, what was interesting to me was, and I told him this I, because I noticed this with, with my mentor, Bruce, I was talking about earlier. I learned things, things from Bruce that he didn't mean to teach me. Right. So he thinks he's teaching me animation and right, graphics, right, right. but I saw how he interacted with 
people. I saw how he, like, if we had to go someplace and get some color correction done, he, he always treated that person like they were an expert. He didn't, you know, he's like, well, what do you think? You're the expert, you know? And, um, you know, I, I was a kid, so I was like, oh, I guess that's what you do. You know, I guess that's how you do it. Not everybody does it that way. You know, they order people around, and, totally. but I didn't know that. I only had the one example. Um, but yeah. that wasn't something he thought he was teaching me, um, the way to treat other people who happen to be working with you on something and the way mm -hmm. that, you know, he would, um, I'd come up with an idea for a spot if we were trying to pitch something to a client. And he would put it in the list of things. If he liked it, he, he never lied to me. If he didn't like it, he was like, no, that's not going to go. That does, I don't like that. But if he liked it, he would include it in the, in the pitch package and say, sure. yeah. And people would say, this is great. And he'd say, well, that Brian thought that up. And I was just this kid, a 12, 13 year old kid. He was like, oh, Brian, you know, he didn't have any problem doing that. And so I'm like, oh, I guess that's what you do. Right. Um, and so what I said to this kid, I was mentoring. I'm like, you know, I hope I'm teaching you what I think I'm teaching you. And I hope the right. other things that I am un unaware of will also help you because you don't know you're just a being a person in the world. And, and sometimes those things um, impact whoever's watching in a way that you don't quite, uh, uh, you can never understand. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so while you were learning uh, your craft, what were the other things you were learning from these mentors? You, you seem to yeah. be, um, a very observant human being about human beings. I, um, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of respect. I had a tremendous amount of respect for them. And I saw that there was, I saw the respect they had for what they did and, um, treating their craft as though it's like a, it matters, you know, and, and that the time you spend with it matters and that, uh, they, they never told me what they're doing is important. Like they never were like, this is important. You should respect this. They never said that, but, but I inferred that from being around them and watching just how they treated the people that came before them and the ideas that they would present to me or into the world. I could see the reverence for it that made me appreciate it and value it, um, understand the value of it, or at least the, that value that they applied to it, I also applied to it because it's the meaning value we applied to it is, you know, it's subjective, but, but they respected what they did and the people that came before them. And I, I not fell in line and just was, it felt like the right thing to do. And that gave me an appreciation for all crafts um, in a way that was expansive because I, I know that it's the same for, every other craft. And yeah. so understanding that, that the more you know about something, the more you're able to appreciate it. And that, that people see things in what they do that you're not able to see. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think I just developed a curiosity that uh, that's a, one thing that uh, a lot of my mentors had is they're all very uh, curious people and they're extremely, um, they still get excited about things that other people might not be excited about and that's kind of a met it's kind of a, a test as far as like what type of people you surround yourself with or you, you know put an object on the table or an article or something that you found and you can see them light up like wow this is really interesting where most people are like why do you right. why do you care about this you know no i, I it's funny I, I i don't know if you saw the episode i did with frank but frank and i talked about this a little bit uh because my 
uh, my mentor was that kind of person and he, and he made it okay for me to be that kind of person, like um, to not, not outgrow certain things. Like I, I like bubbles. I like bomb bubbles. They're still fascinating yeah. to me. They're still amazing to me. Yeah, that's and great. I remember people like, well, I, when I was a kid, I liked them. I'm like, but they haven't changed. They're still cool. They're still amazing to watch. And, um, and I was talking to Frank about that. And he says, oh, you're not talking about curiosity. You're talking about wonder. Yeah. And that, yeah. 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 Allowing yourself to have experience wonder is, is super important. It is so, really important. Though, though, yeah. And the people, obviously, I grew up learning from, that was their practice like wonder they were wonder makers like they that's what they were trying to do and in order to there's an interesting uh i don't know theory i guess i i don't know a thought that i've had about about becoming becoming a magician uh, and and it could be the type of magician that you're talking about the uh, you know with the pillars of you know the shaman shamanistic and mm -hmm. uh, uh Magic with a capital M, magician, mm -hmm. not tricks. Right. There's a, you know, most of the time when someone gets interested in magic, or, uh, traditional perf performing magic type stuff, they uh, they see something that sparks that interest, and there's there's that initial moment of wonder that you're hit with, and then your curiosity takes over, and perhaps you want to. Maybe you just want to know the secret, but maybe you want to share that experience you just had with others. But whatever it is, there's that moment of like pure, pure astonishment in yourself and wonder and curiosity. And then you start to, to learn things. Now, right before you learn how the things are actually achieved, that moment is when you're probably the most capable of being a truly great magician, right? The moment after you've seen something wonderful. Sure. And then decide that you too want to generate wonder before you've learned how to, that moment before you've learned how to is the moment where you're most likely to be a true wonder worker because the second you start learning how these things are done, the, inte the intellect takes over and you start to become, I think, unknowingly cynical about what's possible. And the knowledge starts to replace that feeling of wonder and it makes it hard to access it. It makes it harder to experience that wonder once you start learning how things work. Right, so that the, is definitely true, yeah. So the challenge is to hold on to that wonder and try to carry it with you through the journey, despite having knowledge constantly trying to push the wonder aside or get you to dismiss it or forget it. Because those two things are very hard to carry at the same time. It's very hard to carry the wonder and astonishment of something and the knowledge of how that thing is accomplished. And that's why it's really impressive when people like you know, when you get like a Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is clearly like excited about discoveries that his community makes and is able to convey how amazing it is, despite knowing exactly how it operates and how it works. Right. There's not a clinical telling of 
well, it's because of this and black holes are created for this reason. Right. He's, you know, like, he's like, can you believe that this is how this works? It's amazing. And yeah, and th that takes that takes effort and it takes an intention. Um, and that's really what a good, uh, you know, someone who, who really wants to to generously give that feeling they had to someone else. You have to hold on to that feeling and know what that feels like. And the people I had around me did that and sure. they, 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 they held on to that wonder and they, tr they couldn't help. But when they delivered things to me, messages or lessons or just talking, you could sense that. And, and um, they didn't, again, that's another thing they didn't try to teach me, but I, I could just take it from them uh, by being around them. Yeah. I, I, it's funny, I, I think about that kind of thing often, and I'm using the term magician in that broader yep. sense that I was talking about with story and all of that, but I, I'd often say that, you know, there's, there's not, you're not experiencing the same magic as the audience, right? You're essentially backstage, right? You see all the ropes and pulleys and whatever, and that's, stories work that way. It's like, oh, well, if I do this, people respond like this. If you hear Hitchcock talk about how you get an audience to experience anxiety um you know he's not he's not having that experience he knows what that experience is he knows what you have to do the ingredients you need to make that happen right but he's not experiencing that the way the audience is but what he what i find is when i when i've taught people uh screenwriting and story structure or whatever what what's interesting is they they at first they want to know then they get mad at me because now they know all the tricks right a lot of them and and then they their um their barometer for what's good and bad changes right and at first they're like oh i don't like that movie i used to love you, like I, I took something from them because now they see <laughs> the cracks but then what happens is you can appreciate the really great work in a different way mm-hmm when you can become a real fan of the craft and that becomes the magic part. Right. Did you right. see how well that was executed? Of course you didn't, but I do. And that's amazing what just happened right now. I know it doesn't look like anything, but what just happened is amazing. And so you can shift where that wonder lives in a way. Yeah. You saw my EG talk and yeah. that was, um, was that was great. actually, I was, I'm sorry. Yeah, I loved it. it Thank great. you. That was, um, actually, that's what, that was a shortened version of the memoir I'm, that I wrote. So oh, was, wow. Well, yeah. That was great. Yeah. So the memoir is that. Oh, right man. Um, and so they asked me, they, they asked me what I was working on. I said I was writing this memoir and they said, oh, you have to talk about that. So that's what you saw was a truncated version of yeah. the memoir which I hadn't written yet. So it actually helped me write it. I was oh, starting right. it. Yeah. yeah. To get the, I, I imagine having to get the story down in a short version. Like it's an outline almost of like, Oh, here's what I have to talk. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. And so, um, but as I was writing and even as I, I was giving that talk, the, it doesn't work. It never would work if I wasn't vulnerable up there. It would never work. Oh. It, yeah, it would seem performative, and that's a different thing. That's a different thing. It's like, no, this is about how vulnerable I am. 
This is that's what it, that's it. Yeah, and it also goes to the truth of the thing of like if you're if I if I yeah if I sense any whiff of you're trying to sell me on this story with a story that's so important, it's just reductive of the story, and it also makes me question it in a way that I shouldn't be questioning it. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you have that same. It's in your book. It's in your show. The the vulnerability is an important part of your show. Hmm. Um, it is. I think in the end what ends up impacting people more than um you know nobody talks about the illusions right they're there well that is astonishing but they talk about the feelings mm -hmm. that get evoked by the illusions right um they talk a little bit about the letter like i don't know i don't have any idea how sure, sure, sure. you know um but mostly when i hear people talk about it uh they talk about um the feelings. And well, I think that you being vulnerable, it, it it's like it gives permission yeah. to them to be vulnerable. Well, it's two things. I mean, it's more than that, but uh, off yeah. the top of my head, there's two two things that come to mind. Uh, one is, yeah, I, I, I realized uh, very early on that I was going to be asking people uh, not necessarily to be vulnerable, but to be put into a position where they might be vulnerable or right. might feel vulnerable. And I never wanted to put someone in a position to think that I, I would never put them in a position I would not put myself in. And yeah. I have to show them that. And that's just an element of, of, of trust, you know, of, of, of genuinely establishing this is um, a safe world that that we're inhabiting right now uh, it's oprah you know give them a piece of yourself like oprah never had people come on her show without be, right. talking about her own struggles and her own humanity and her own fears and that gives people permission to talk about their own struggles and things um uh but but there's another more there's another element which is that i know people think that i'm a liar just based on them thinking I'm a magician. Right. And so there's an added, I, I have gone and maybe too far uh, to great lengths to establish, uh, like to be honest, to, to establish that what I'm doing and saying is real and these things are really happening. What, uh, I'm not trafficking in lies. I'm, I, you know, uh, these things were really Im are important to me. And I feel like perhaps there's some compensating going on of like, I'm going to be extra honest with you because I understand um, how you think of me or, or what you might think of me. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Jelani Cobb, who's a brilliant writer, he writes for the yeah. New Yorker. And, yeah. um, he, he's actually the one who pointed out to me that uh, he's like, well, you know, black people have been modifying their behavior based on how, you know, we think that you're going to be perceived, you're going to be perceived, you yeah. know, and, and I'd never, I, 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 it took him saying that for me to, to, to realize it. And as soon as he did, it's like, oh yeah, of course. And women do yeah. it 
too, you know, obviously they, you know, have to, I have to act a certain way so that I'm not perceived as the way that they think I am and, and alter, alter our appearance and our mannerisms. Now I, um, being a, being a straight white guy, obviously I developed a moving through the world, not, you know, not having to care about those things. I try to be mindful of it. And, 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 but, but what I did develop was, was this need to be honest and to, to have people know that I'm being honest. Like, right. That, that, that was important to me because I, every time I got in front of them, I can tell they didn't believe me. Hmm. And so it was like early on in my career when I was trying to, to create work and have people hear it, it was very difficult because they just couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't hear a magician say something uh, that mattered. That really mattered. Not like, like, oh, that was a nice sentiment. Right. But some like a genuine statement that actually has weight and gravity. Just couldn't hear it. Um, and it was because of, uh, partially because of the context. Sure. And, and so uh, I, I definitely swung heavily towards everything has to be real. Everything has to be true uh, and, and feel genuine because it has to be genuine. It can't be the illusion of, can't be the illusion of authenticity. It has to be gen- authentic. Yeah. And so that, that was a really important thing for me uh, in, in my work. And, and yeah, I, so I, I never thought, I never thought of it about like, be vulnerable, be vulnerable. I just thought, be honest with them, be, be yeah. honest with them because in the few areas where you're not revealing everything that you're, you're talking about or doing, uh, that's kind of, this is the penance yeah. for being able to create the illusions in this world that I want to create is everything else has to be true so that the illusions can be, can be, you know, pointing towards the truths rather than, you know, um, disguising them or, or concealing them. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, a couple of things you said there that one is that, uh, you were, you were talking about Oprah and always, you know, she was always revealing something. Um, and I find that when I direct, that's a really important component that if I'm asking an actor to go someplace because they have to go to a real place, they can't, you know, and if I'm asking an actor to go to a place, um, I will let them know it's safe by giving them a piece of myself in that way mm-hmm. um, in order to say it's, this is okay, it's safe, and I'll do it too. Again, I can't ask people to go someplace right. that I'm not willing to go. Um, that's a lot to ask. So, uh, so that just reminded me of that. But the other thing is that um, um, one of my mentors um, uh, sort of... Uh, I never took a class from him or anything like that, but um, was my, my friend Stuart Stern who wrote Rebel Without a Cause. Mm. And Stuart uh, was all about, like his class that he taught, we both taught at the same film school. Um, his class was called The Personal Connection. And it was all about um, putting yourself on the page. It was all about all those those things that you don't want to talk about, those things you don't want to um, reveal. Um, right. And I'm not talking about, it doesn't have to be literal, but it does have to be genuine. Oh, right. 
I mean, right? it's the best comic. The best comics are the ones who say the things that like you kind of can't believe they're admitting to, you know, and yeah. and talking about things that I, I can't believe they're admitting this aspect of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it, 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 what happens is part two things happen. I think one is that people, the first response is, wow, I can't believe that person saying this or revealing this. And the other thing that happens, and this is the thing that people don't understand is that, what the, the very next thought people have is, how did they know that about me? Oh, right. It's true for all of us is the answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How did they know that about me? Right. Right. I think about that a lot in terms of my own practice and, 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 and how can I be so, how can I be so selfish? It's, it's generous. Yeah. How can you, how can you do work that's so, dig so deep into oneself that it actually becomes universal and you find the thing inside of you that is actually inside of everyone. Uh, right. Because not everyone has the same experience, but everyone, everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be accepted. Everyone is afraid of things. Everyone, you know, uh, we, we all have shared experiences, even if our experiences are not the same. And so, I, I, I try to dig for what's, what's underneath my story to the, to the human, the, the, the human layer, which is even, it's beneath, uh, or I should say the, the being layer, which is beneath the human layer. The, right. Yeah. What sure. is that being layer uh, underneath the human layer? And, and that, that is when you find the universal uh, thread that, that connects us all. Well, like I think about, um, things you talked about with with your mother and uh, not wanting your friends and people around to know that she was a lesbian because of all the stuff that was coming at you because yeah. of it um and how you didn't want people to come to your house and you know all of that and what, what's interesting about that is i'm sure somebody can listen to that story or read it and think oh yeah my dad was an alcoholic and i didn't want people to come to my house and yeah. right like there's a or whatever my my mom was a manic depressive and i didn't want people to come to my whatever it is yeah um where they they understand it again it doesn't have to be their literal experience yeah we all hide parts of our lives from others you know right. like that is a universal thing. there's not anyone on this planet who doesn't hide aspects of who they are or who their family is or who their lover is. We all hide things from others and we all know what it feels like to have things hid from us, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that's a, a very universal thing. But again, I did, I, I, I didn't like, I didn't anticipate on telling stories about myself in the show when I initially conceived of it, that mm -hmm. came later. I, I created the show like a concept album, basically, about identity and so it was all like variations on a theme that all led back to this and kind of had the thread of the Rulatista story to tie it all together but it was very heady uh and this goes back to like you know frank and vanessa and you know the the people around me uh who would hear me say the things that i was planning on saying and then not really understand it. Uh, they maybe understood intellectually, but they're like, I don't, I don't really see what you're getting at with this. Cause it was very abstract. And again, I was railing against them understand. 
I didn't really care if people understood or not. That was how far the pendulum had swung for me. Of like, I don't even want them to know what they're seeing. I want them to see a spaceship for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And, but the problem is, is they couldn't be on the journey with me without a proxy, without some way to enter the experience and not be removed from it. Mm -hmm. And so my personal narrative or narratives became a way for people to access things like that. Like, like I, Oh, I know what it's like to have shame or things that I've concealed from the world, or that's a much easier way to have a discussion with a larger group of people about uh, identity and secrecy. And, and these things It's a lot easier to just talk about that, about growing up with a, a gay mom and needing to hide that from friends and things like that is a lot easier than talking ab abstractly uh, about secrecy and right. how, that, how that relates to our identity. And, and then it becomes like a Ted talk, which is not right either. So, right. so it's, it's finding, and this goes to like storytelling. I've heard you talk about things like this and like figuring out how to be generous enough so that they understand what you're getting at but then not sharing too much so that it remains in like a nice space of story and poetics and right the, you know it's finding that balance that is the craft right figuring mm -hmm. out how much how much to reveal and how much to conceal it's all it's about you know it's funny i when when uh going back to the eg talk there's something that i did there on purpose if you if you remember the the slides i had one of the things that I, I realized was, and, and, I, and I, wasn't, I wasn't wrong, you know, the, it was 98% white, the EG conference, right? Right. Oh, oh, man. I think I, there was a moment where you, you kind of turned the room upside down. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, I don't know. What are you talking about? There was a moment, uh, uh, there was a moment where you, it was something about making everyone very uncomfortable. Oh, I, I said that I, because it's one of those things where I know people, oh, you're going to talk about race and I, now yeah. I, so, yeah. so I, I just, I told them what I was going to talk about. And then I said, um, you know, and I, I don't want anybody to feel guilty. I don't want any of that. That's not what this is about. Um, but I, I might make you uncomfortable and I'm okay with that. That's right. Great. That was it. That was telling us that you were going to make us uncomfortable was really great. It was, I don't know if that was your, what you were going to mention, but I do remember, I remember the, uh, uh, boy, the authority in saying that, like, it was, it was really wonderful because it was like, y'all need to sit down and take, to, to, you need to, you know, sit down and listen. Yeah. It was a really take the floor moment. It was really great, but I'm sorry, that probably thank wasn't what you were going to say. Thank you. No, but thanks. Um, no, what I was going to say was, I think that the idea, I think that, you know, I didn't want to give that talk. Um, oh, okay. I didn't want to give that talk because I felt um, ghettoized in a way. Me mm -hmm. Meaning, I, I'm a story expert. Everybody else is talking about their expertise. Totally. And you're asking me to talk about the black guy thing, about my brother getting shot. Right. Right. And I didn't like having to do that. And I didn't want to turn down the opportunity to speak at the conference. And so that was the thing they got excited about. So that was the thing I talked about. But I was not that interested in talking about. It. That makes so much sense. I, 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 yeah, I, you had, I hadn't heard you mention that, but that makes so much sense. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like, I feel, so I thought, I thought, well, okay, so here's a bunch of people who can't probably identify with the experience. Um, they're used to seeing this kind of thing on the news. They're used to seeing, oh, black guy gets shot. It's, it's almost white noise. Right. right. And so one of the things I did with those slides was even though I was talking about um, these things with my brother and I was talking about racism and I was talking about how that impacted us and probably impacted the murderer's life. I was just showing scenes of us at Christmas. Scenes of us playing cowboys. Right. So that the audience could go, oh, that's like me. I've done those things. I spent Christmas with my family. I wanted right. it to be like all the, the stuff that separates me from them to go away. Right. And so they could just see two kids. Right. Right. Not, not two black kids, two kids. Right. Two kids. Two kids. Then they could feel the loss. Yeah. Otherwise, they weren't going to be able to feel the loss. Right. And so um, it was kind of that compensation thing. You're, you're like, oh, people expect a certain thing from me um, because it's me. They're going to respond in the way they would normally respond to that kind of thing. And they would, you know, afterwards there would be platitudes about, yes, we have to do something, but, you know, you know, but, but um, it wouldn't have been real. I had to make it real for them. Right. Right. Um, that's a, that's an important distinction though, uh, of, uh, of like thinking like a craftsman and an artist, as opposed to just a truth teller, um, because, you could have gone out and just told the truth, but you also thought about putting the truth inside of them, mm -hmm. which is right. Which is a distinction of like, you knew, you knew that saying me and my brother growing up is one thing, but saying me and my brother growing up and showing a picture of you at Christmas, like opening presents together, whatever, you know, like showing the human elements and, and, you're planting the story inside of them in a way that just telling them might not necessarily do. You understood that, that you have to get past what they think they know and like the, and, and the expectations of like, you know, preconceived notions of, yeah, when you say, you know, uh, me and my brother growing up, their idea of two black kids growing up and w the truth might be completely different might be might be right but historically speaking in this country we're not great at that you know right and so you that's a really uh important thing in terms of like and i'm just thinking out loud based on what you said but like here having the the uh the thought of knowing that you need to not just tell them the truth but implant that do your best as a storyteller to embed that within them somehow using all of the tools you have the spoke you know writing spoken word imagery how do i get them to not just understand that i had a brother growing up but what it feels like to have a brother so that later when that loss occurs they don't just intellectualize it and hear oh he lost his brother they feel the loss of a brother right and and so that is a very important uh, subtle but important distinction and like you know like why your talk was so good it's because you you're mani not manipulating is not the wrong wor right word but i i that is what all good art is right it's a it's a form of artifice and manipulation like your brother's your brother's not alive and your brother 
but right. you, make, you make him feel alive long enough for us to fall in love with him so that we can experience the loss right. that you experience. Right. You know? And so that, that is the beauty of, of good storytelling and a good artist. Um, and uh, it's kind of a long way to compliment you, but it's also, okay. like, it's an important distinction though, of, of not just telling the truth, but, but getting someone to understand that truth past their intellect right and into them is is a is the goal you know yeah i think it is um it it yes yeah, so many people stay on the surface i mean there's a reason your show became what it became and it's because it is an act of generosity right right um people immediately um almost immediately you feel like you get something when you're watching your show, that you've gotten something, that there's a takeaway. Even if you don't know what that is, right? Yeah, even if you don't know what that is. One of Frank's favorite things to do is go up to people after the show, uh, people who were crying. He would go ask them. He's like, I couldn't help but notice you're crying. Do you know why you're crying? And they'd be like, no. And he'd be like, perfect, and then walk away. Really? Yeah, he loved it. He loved it. He loved, he loved seeing people full of something they didn't know they like full but not understanding what they were full of just right full like i i feel full i didn't even see the food but i right. feel right. boy, i feel f satisfied and full yeah and not being able to and that intangible thing is the thing that is the the highest form of craft and artistry to be able to do that where people are just they're left feeling like they got something, but not necessarily knowing what they got because right. you're, you're striking a chord that's past, again, past knowledge, right? Beyond, beyond intellect, beyond knowledge, beyond even feelings. Maybe there's just something deeply human that we're striving to, you know, to get to. And it's the best art for me. It's like, I, I just know this is fucking amazing. I don't even know why yet. Mm -hmm. And then you can dig into it and, and start to untangle it and figure it out. Maybe. But boy, when good art hits you, it hits you, it hits you past all the things you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Frank, you know, Frank Frank's a person I, I would I would call a magician. That, you know, and I, I talked to him about this and he doesn't he doesn't know what I mean, but but or maybe he does. Uh, but to 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 basically take a thing, put it on your hand when he was a puppeteer. Uh, it's it's sorcery. It's not. It is. It's sorcery. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like well, Miss Piggy sorcery. lives. Miss Piggy is alive. Fozzie Bear is alive. Impossible. It's fucking impossible. And yeah. I, I talk about this with people all the time. Like when I'm trying to convey Frank's work, it was part of why we got along and connected early on. Is that like I I just saw what he's done and and understood how impossible it is that like Miss Piggy's not real but boy you couldn't convince me otherwise like it's she's real she is so, real so is yoda yeah so so it's they're real and but they're not and the fact that they're not but they feel like real things that exist in our universe and that they were created by human beings is it's mind-blowing it is isn't it and, and and he writes it off because he was he was the guy doing it and you know he's the one whose shoulder got tired right but, it's 
that what that took to do that. And there's a, there's a reason that you don't can't name other famous puppeteers. Right. Because he transcended it in such a way that he put so much love and care into it that these characters became real. And it's yeah. such a rare, it's such a rare thing. It's magical. It is magical. And what's interesting to me is that he also, um, uh, doesn't like the the title. No, he hates it. Right? Yeah. It, it demeans what he is, what he's done. Yeah, but at the same time, he admits he is a puppeteer. So right. it's like weird. It's it's right. it's the same. It's the same issue with with magic. It's also the same issue with writing. Like I think that writers, everyone, everyone struggles with it of being like just just one thing you know and like a, a good writer who's able to to really write something that that it fills us with so much wonder and whatever it's like what it takes to do that is not just like sitting down and doing this there's so much more to it so i think that it's just it's it's the frustration of 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 having to be to be of being flattened to being something so basic and pedestrian when really uh, the people who are really out there doing it in a in a way that transcends their medium, there's not really a word for that. No, there but, isn't. But you can also recognize it in others in any field when you see it. You go like, "Oh, you're you're another thing. You're on another level." You and, can see it. You can there. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's a game recognizes game thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can yeah. you can see it. You can, you you. It doesn't have to be your craft. Right. This right. that's why this is called Masters of the Craft, because I'm talking to all kinds of people and they don't all do the same thing. Right. I'm not talking to just screenwriters. I'm not yeah. just talking to I'm talking to all kinds of people who um who I think have mastered their craft, whatever that craft is. And I think ultimately what I'm looking for is sort of the Venn diagram, right? <laughs> like I'm yeah. where yeah. do all these things cross? Where are they the same? Totally, I get that. And and uh, I was just watching, there was a Fran Lebowitz thing on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, there was a segment where Spike Lee was interviewing her. And yeah. He, and he brought up Michael Jordan. Right. And and I think it was, he called called him an artist, maybe? Or I think he did. He, he called my, he's like, you know, do you think an artist can be in sports like Michael, Michael Jordan? She said, no. Mm-hmm. And Spike's face was kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, like <laughs> right. what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I think Franly Wits, from what I can tell, is obviously a very smart person and, and uh, um, opinionated is, is sort of being opinionated is sort of her thing. Mm -hmm. But there was, there was a, her, her ability to be dismissive of, of Michael Jordan. It, it's so ludicrous because <laughs> because it's so michael jordan was so far beyond every other basketball player like we had ever seen that it stopped being basketball mm -hmm. like it, it would just be he was something he was a basketball player but that just feels wholly inadequate to describe michael jordan as a as a basketball player you know because he's it's you can only just say well it's michael jordan and and because so like whatever and that sports isn't a craft right but it's a right. thing we people learn how to do and they try to get good at it and do it 
and is it a sport? Sure. But like, boy, clearly when the right person is in the right lane in the right car where they got all the right things together and they're just put on this planet to do what they're doing, it becomes something else. And to deprive whoever that person is of that genius, right? regardless of their field, right. is ridiculous. And that's sort of like, that's Frank. I think of Frank is that like, to call him like a puppeteer is like, yeah, that's true. But, but you have to put that into context. And, and and like look at the playing field and look at all the other players and like where does Frank sit in that you know yeah that, you know on that team and and uh, and there's just something magical that happens and it's why it's why we get excited about things when we see someone who's doing the thing that they're put here to do in a way and mm-hmm. and uh, and I think Frank was put put here to bring things to life you know yeah. and he 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 believes that too and yeah. it's clear from his work and, it is clear it's, and so so yeah i uh uh i don't know how we got off on that tangent but no that's fine it's that's what this show is but yeah uh, um i it made me think too about my friend glenn Keane. i was talking about the animator right like he does what frank does right i mean other there are other disney animators and there are some great ones but there's something that Glenn brings of himself. And when you talk to him, there's a way that he thinks about things. Um, He's a very thoughtful, feeling person about what he's doing. And so he is those characters when he's animating them. He is the little mermaid. He is her. Um, You know, his are the characters that everybody goes, oh, sure. He did that. He did the beast in Beauty and the Beast, right? Like, the beast. So this, this was the renaissance of Disney era. Yeah. This, this is that. It's, it's he, him. Yeah, it's him. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say that. I, I don't want to. No, no, no. I, it but, was the magic sauce of like you had Alan, uh, Mer, was it Merkin or? Merkin? Yeah, the, the songwriter. and Songwriter. There was kind of, there was a group of people at that time. They were the right people. Right. Yeah. But I think Glenn, um, you know, was certainly one of the star players. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and to hear the way he talks about these things, uh, these characters, you know, when he was doing the beast, he he would be sore at the end of the night because mm-hmm. he became he had to imbue it with. Uh, and I've done this when I when I um, the last couple of things I've written, um, I feel like I, I had to put a piece of my soul into the piece and it had to be ripped out. Right. It had to be ripped out. That's and it, that's. That's important, though, like for me, at least in my work, is I can't I'm really not effective at doing things. I don't feel like they have to be done like. Like in and of itself had to exist, just had to. And it was in me before it existed. I'm like, this show is in me. I have to carve it out. Yep. Um, uh, I felt the same way about uh, I didn't feel that way about the book until I did. And 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 I was looking for. I had the story. Mm-hmm. I knew I knew the story. I was like, but why? Why do I need to tell this? And as yeah. soon as I understood why I needed to needed to tell it, I was like, oh, well now I have like now now there's no choice. There's not even a choice then. Right. That's exactly it's funny. That's exactly what happened to me with my memoir um because um I had done a book with this publisher and I was trying to get another book 
with them and I kept pitching things and they, they were lukewarm about everything I pitched. And then, and then the editor said to me, he goes, well, you know, if you do a memoir, we do well with memoirs. You could, we could do something with that. I'm like, well, who am I to write a memoir? Who cares? Who cares about me? Like, who cares? And he's like, well, I'm just saying that's what, and he, and he said, um, well, maybe there's something you can do about your, you and your brother. Maybe there's something right. like that. I was not into it for the same reasons I didn't want to give the EG talk. I didn't want to do it. And then I thought about it. Well, how, how could I do it? When I found a way where I could be honest uh, about um, all of, the, especially the racism stuff that happened to me in my life and be honest about that and the feelings about that, and about the dyslexia and all of that. And somehow not make it about me. <laughs> right. Right. Somehow I had to make it not about me. I had to make it about something bigger than me. Once I figure it out how to do that, then there was a reason to tell it. Right. Because it was not uh, a vanity piece. And there was also, again, I didn't want it to fall into the, I didn't want to be ghettoized. I didn't want it to fall into the category of, of um, you know, I'm a full human being. And so I don't always want to write about being a black guy or, you know what I mean? You know, I, I have yeah. other experiences too. Yeah. So, um, but once I figured out how to make it matter, then I could do it. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's the thing, right? Is, is when those two things align, it's where it becomes necessary. It's almost tricking yourself into it really, because yeah. everyone wants you to tell the story you don't want to tell. That's, that's that's the story they want to hear, right? Right. That's, yeah. That's the story people want to hear is the one you don't want to tell us. And looking at that and figuring out what story do I never want to tell people? Figuring out why you need to tell people. That's that's a magical intersection mm -hmm. uh, where you find really important work, work that work that really matters. Right. When you start sharing the stories that you never want to share, um, but finding a way to do it that acknowledges your own humanity and doesn't deprive others of their humanity is a really powerful place to try to explore in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have a lot of stories I don't want to tell. Um, this was, this was, uh, the book was really the, that was the story. I'm like, ah, I really am not, this is not something I'm terribly proud of. Right. Uh, it's informed me. I don't regret it. Right. Uh, I never, never once regretted it because of how much it impacted me as a human and revealed. Do, do you want to, for people who haven't read the book, do you want to say what it is? That oh, you sure. Uh, in my twenties, I worked as what's known as a bust out dealer, which is a professional card cheat. Somebody uses sleight of hand to cheat players in a card game um so I, I wasn't there for myself you're hired you're in service of of the house the people who are running the game um but this was something that uh, i did for a brief period of time in my 20s and how i got there was kind of circumstantial uh extremely circumstantial it's it's laid out in the book and mm -hmm. but but there's an element of i 
practiced this thing my my whole life up until that point. I, I became good at a thing that I would never really use, which was I learned how to cheat at cards. Right. Uh, without really the intent of cheating at cards. I was interested in sleight of hand and the most difficult sleight of hand uh, and the most, to me, the most nuanced and beautiful sleight of hand were the sleights that I had seen in the gambling world because they simulate real actions and the stakes are much higher in a very real sense. So it just, it's an elevated form. It's, it's a, you know, in terms of you have to be very good at it because there are consequences if you're not. Right. At least in theory. Um, so it was a very romantic, I romanticized that, that branch of, of the tree that I was uh, exploring. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I had this experience and it informed me as a human and as an artist in many different ways. And I was okay with just keeping that to myself. And I did, I didn't talk about it. I didn't brag about it. A lot of, um, th there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people, magicians and things who, who like to trade on that idea of, Oh, you'd never want to play cards with me. And uh, you know, oh, I'm a right. rootin' tootin' card cheat and all that stuff. And you know, the ones who talked about it the most were the ones who usually never right. did anything. Really. <laughs> right. Right. But it's a, it's a very easy, it's a trope that you can latch on to and, and cash in on if you're smart about it, I suppose. Um, it becomes a character choice almost of like, right. I'm going to be a magician who says that I cheated at cards uh, right. and maybe, maybe did at my friend's game or something like that. But, um, but uh, so I actually was reluctant to, trade on it the way that you're exactly the way you're talking about trading on your blackness, you know, and like, yeah. not like, it's not what my work is about. Uh, I don't want to turn it into a trope uh, or, or, and, or it would be a trope even if I just started talking about it. Like, I felt like it would be like, uh, that's like, I'll leave that to the guys who are pretending to do that. <laughs> right. right. Um, and I didn't want to join that, you know, that, that group. And so I was, very reluctant to talk about it for, for, for that reason. And I was reluctant to talk about it because like, you know, I must admit you did a shitty thing, like at least morally, you know, questionable, uh, definitely illegal. Uh, and you know, uh, it is a, a complicated thing to admit to people because like, I understand, I understand that admitting like you, if you cheated at cards, there's a bit of, uh, well, that's cool. Right. Like, there's a bit of that, like, but but I but being on the other side of it, you understand how how what it really is. You know, like anything, it's the, how the sausage gets made is uh, is is you know it's very ugly. And so yeah. I, I I was reluctant for all those reasons. And I you know I don't want to be perceived as a you know as a as a shyster. So I've worked so hard at being like an honest person and having my practice be about being authentic and real and truthful. And it's like, you have this mark on your record that that is, well, you're clearly, you're clearly okay with doing that. Like, right. What, what else are you not telling us or, or, or something? It's just a, a mark on your record, you know? And, and, and if I didn't say anything, no one would know. And, uh, you know, I could go on, pretending that I, I'm, you know, have a clean record or it's, you don't know. Right. Right. And so, uh, so it took some work, uh, and, and exploring to understand the way that you 
you know, would tell your story, why, why would I, why would I tell people that story? And, and there, there's the obvious reasons of commercial aspects of like, cause it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story that people would want to hear. That's never enough for me to tell a story. I, I don't, right. I don't really care if someone else wants to hear a story. I need to know why I need to tell it. Right. I have to know why I'm telling a story mm-hmm. um, for it to matter to me first. Cause I feel like, I don't even care if others will get something out of it. If it doesn't mean something to me, there's no point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, other, otherwise, I, I, it feels hollow, and and I'm not interested in in and I and I and I part of the reason I tell stories is to connect with others. And if I don't feel connected to the story I'm telling, I'm not. It is an illusion of a connection if someone feels connected to the story. Right. It's not actually a connection to me or to the right. story, you know, so they can be connected to a story I tell, but if I'm not connected to that story, it's not really an authentic connection. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a con man. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I, I, I needed to know why I would tell that story and, 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 and when I realized uh, that what I experienced and I just started talking about it casually with with friends, people I'm close to, you know, uh, uh, colleagues or, or whoever, fr- friends like you, who I would tell the story to and then reflect on or talk about what I witnessed there. I could see, I could see them understanding uh, me and I just see them understanding things in a way that I hadn't anticipated because these were things that were obvious to me because I'd been there and done that and saw what I saw and then tried to put that into my work in other ways. But, but talking about it explicitly head on, people were understanding it in, a, in, in interpreting it in a way that I, I intended it. And, right. and um, I started to find reasons to tell the story that were outside of, of my insecurities of, of telling it, you know, is it worth it to tell this story? And I finally found that it was. Yeah. In the, in the, in my memoir, I talk a lot about dyslexia. Right. But do you consider it a memoir? Because I, I, um, I struggle with that word a lot. Not, not, not for the same reasons of like, I, you know, the, like the show, I just, when I, I, maybe I was, brought up to think memoirs were like a life story, you know, like a whole oh, life story. A whole like, life? Yeah, kind of. Like, I feel like this is like a, this book is a chapter of a, of a life, you know. Well, and, I, 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 maybe I don't know the definition well enough. I would call it a memoir still. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like, uh, yeah, I, I understand that. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Um, uh, an autobiography, which used mm-hmm. to be the word, Seems right. like that would be a whole life to me. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. At least it makes sense in my head. I don't know what the actual definitions are. That's the only definitions we need right now. That's fine. okay. Okay. But um, so again, this is something I've talked about on the show before. But the reason I talk about my dyslexia is because for a long time I wouldn't talk about it. Hmm. Um, because it, in a lot of people's minds, it's. Um, a learning disability, which it, they are now finding that that's not a good way to categorize dyslexia. Uh, because it, 
as it turns out, people with dyslexia um, have um, some deficiencies, but there's like a trade-off and they have all these kinds of amazing other abilities. Sure. So Einstein was dyslexic. And, and people who aren't dyslexic hear that and they say, oh, he overcame his dyslexia to become Einstein or to be Einstein. It's like, no, he's Einstein because he's dyslexic. Sure, that makes perfect sense. But, right? Yeah. Um, Leonardo da Vinci was dyslexic. Walt Disney was dyslexic. John Lennon was dyslexic, right? Once you go down the list of people who were dyslexic, uh, Steve Jobs, you start to go, well, clearly this can't be a disability. There's something else going on there. It's a different way to process information. That's all it is, right? It's the, the you, you need to find other ways to process information. You develop different pathways than other people, workarounds and shortcuts that you may not gain if you're going down the linear path of, of education. Right. And my, my guess is, this is another thing, my guess is that it, it was selected for because in the, in the wild, there is no reading and writing. Right. Doesn't wow. exist. Right. So how would dyslexia show up? It would only show up as a different way of solving problems. Yeah. Hey, wait, this person has an idea how to kill a mammoth. Right. You know, like you want different kinds of thinkers trying to solve those kinds of problems. And my guess is that um, there are a lot more dyslexics than they thought before. So they, I, I have a feeling it was selected for because it, there's no way for it to show up in a pre-literate world. That's really interesting. And there's no way to prove you wrong now. So that's, <laughs> I mean, that's really, yeah. So, but, but, the, but, but the, when you were a kid, when I was a kid too, they, they barely talked about it when I was a kid. Like people barely knew what it was. Right. Um, growing up in the seventies, nobody, they didn't talk about it. Growing up in the 70s and being a black kid with dyslexia is even wor worse because I think because people who are inclined to think you aren't bright, mm. right? Well, you prove that you can't spell, you're having a hard time reading, right? You, you are proving their stereotype. You are reinforcing their stereotype. Um, I mean, I got to a point where people just almost refused to teach me. Um, wow. Yeah. And so anyway, um, but there's all this... Um, shame around it and embarrassment around it. Um, everybody else knows their timetables. Why is this so hard for me? You know, there's all this embarrassment and shame around it. And everybody I know who's dyslexic has that still. They walk around with it all the time. Right. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, you learn how to live with it. You make it, It's like grief is like this. You learn how to live with it. You just have a place you put it. But it doesn't go anywhere. Right. It's just part of the your the stuff you carry with you now. And I was at a um I was I, I got to meet uh Robert Benton, who's uh a filmmaker I really um admire. And Robert Benton wrote and directed Kramer versus Kramer versus Kramer and oh, yeah. um Places in the Heart. Uh really, really, really good writer and director. And I, I got to meet him once. And uh, before he was going to give a talk, I, I got to meet him and then uh, in the green room. And then I went out and listened to his talk. And I didn't know he was dyslexic. And he talked about it. He talked about feeling stupid. And I was like, oh, I know what he's talking about. And I think, well, he's Robert Benton. Like, what? what? But he talks about feeling stupid, knowing he was stupid. Right. And 
I have seen people respond when I say I have dyslexia, like, but you're so smart. How can you have dyslexia? You know, uh, it's like, well, it's not what you think it is. But I know that for some people, when I say that, that is how they're going to see me. Right. You can see a shift sometimes. But when I saw Robert Benton talk about it, it made me feel better. He was somebody I admired, somebody I knew was clearly smart, very good at his job. Um, and I thought, oh, that's my job now. I have to talk about it. I can't not talk about it. Right, right, right. right? Yeah. It doesn't matter how it makes me feel. Now, it's gotten easier over time to talk about it. It's still not really easy. It's just easier. Um, I suppose that'll just keep happening. It'll get easier and easier and easier. Yeah, but that's what makes it generous, is that, is that it costs something. Exactly, right? And I just thought, well, if I can do for other people what, what he did for me, then that's what I, now that I am aware of what it does, I have to do that. And that goes back to the thing of like you talking about being performative on stage, talking about your brother, is that like, if you were comfortable talking about it, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, like you're not, you know, right. You're back, you know? Right. No, it's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. It's you, you have to give something of yourself. Um, and that, that's an all, that's in all forms, I believe of storytelling in that, like, what are you, what are you uncomfortable talking about? And then finding a way to talk about it. Cause there's so much there be and, and you know look i don't know what the whole operation of all this is all this in life i don't know you know who knows but i do know that one of the things about art and w whichever medium or form it takes it's a way to connect and to feel less alone and to remind us of our shared humanity and the you know the whatever you feel uncomfortable about is that is the thing that binds us and sharing that in a way, whether it be literally just sharing it or, or transforming it into something that in, you know, putting it into work of some type, it, it, you're, you're, you're telling people effectively that they're not alone. And when they find it and they recognize it, they're going to tell you you're not alone. Yep. And it is, it is, a, it is, that's, why, what else are we here for, you know, other than to remind each other that we're here together, you know? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You know, when you, when you, it's interesting what happens when you um, reveal something. If the, the, in fact, there's an improv game um, where um, it's sort of an early stages of improv when you're, people are getting to know each other. And so uh, one person, maybe you've played this game, I don't know. But one person, uh, uh, you know, you're in a group and one person steps out from the group and they say something about themselves. So they'll say like, um, I had an alcoholic father. Okay. Then the people who had al alcoholic fathers gather around that person. Hmm. And then somebody else says, um, Oh, I know it. They don't step out from the circle. So you're all together and then somebody says something and everybody moves away who's not in right. that group. Okay. And then somebody else says something else about themselves. And then everybody moves, everybody who... And what you see after a while is how much connection you have. 
Right. Oh, I didn't know that person. I wouldn't have thought of that person as a this or that or whatever. Yeah. It's amazing what it does. It's a really powerful thing to see how you're connected on deep levels. Right. Um, you know, um, and I think that's what a good, you know, going back to, to Frank, when Frank talks about building characters around their pain, hmm. Right. That's where he comes. That's where he's coming at them. Like what's Miss Piggy's pain? What's Yoda's struggle? The struggles are what define us. Right. So so that's what defines those characters for him, um, which means he's got to go into his own pain. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing when we believe Yoda, when we believe Miss Piggy, we're seeing actual struggle. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. Right. It's real. Um, Glenn King told me when he was animating uh, the little mermaid, there's a, there's when she's singing uh, part of your world, she, um, she, she reaches up at one point. We're up above looking down and she reaches up because she wants to be part of that world. And he told me that he felt like he'd gone too far. That it was too literal that he'd gone too far, that he'd done too much, but he was feeling it. He was like, but that's what she wants. She's straining to be part of that world. And he's like, I think I may have gone too far. He felt really vulnerable. Mm. But people now say to him, oh my God, when I was a little kid and I saw that, I knew exactly what she was feeling. Uh, one, one woman said, I, I wanted to reach out and grab her and pull her in because she was so... You know, I guess she stood up in the theater, this little girl, and she wanted to help Ariel out into this world because she could feel it. Um, but that was Glenn. Right. She was feeling. Right. I do think you put a piece of your soul into your work if it's any good. And it can often be painful. And you often are, there's some trepidation about it. Do I want to do this? Do I want to say that? Do I want to go this far? Um, and that's always the stuff that, works the best that resonates the deepest um and is the most universal yeah I, I i totally agree and i don't know how you can make great work without doing it like maybe it's possible but i i i i don't i, th I think you'd make superficial work it yeah. would be you know um marlon brando you know he used to test directors so um he sure tested frank oh right right <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. So he used to test directors. And, and I think Sidney Lumet writes about it in his book, Making Movies. And he says, you know, Brando would give a performance that was technically a good performance. Mm -hmm. But he didn't bring it. He didn't go there. So he would do it. And if the director uh, said print, he knew he couldn't trust that director. That makes sense. Doesn't it? That makes perfect sense. That's that's why uh maybe that's why i always trusted frank is he never said print and it was it was always you know <laughs> eh, we're not there yet so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's to your point of like mentorship and or, or like i'm very like i know i'm in the wrong room if if i'm the creative heavy like i feel like i i feel like i like being not the heavyweight you know the right in the room i like being in the room with the heavyweights and being like i got a long way to go to catch up to these guys yeah that's that's when i feel like i'm 
have an opportunity for growth and, and exploration. Um, not to say that like being, being a mentor and a teacher isn't important too. I'm just, I, I still like being challenged and pushed and, and having people around me. I know that I'll get the best work when I'm around people who are, you know, talented and, and brilliant. To, oh yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. 100%. I, that feeling of being around people, like, should I even be in this room? Right. right. <laughs> you know, uh, um, it's, it's always, if you're in there, you probably should be there, but that's a hard thing to think about yourself often. When I've been in those rooms, I thought, I thought, really, should I be, did they know what, do they know I'm here? Sure. Um, like you're going to get taken out because you're not, leg, you know, legitimate, but um, it's the only time actually, I don't feel imposter syndrome when I get a job or doing, I don't have that feeling. Um I think I've had to work too hard and nobody's ever given me anything I didn't deserve. So I don't have that feeling of imposter syndrome, but the time I do feel it, I think is when I'm around uh, people I, whose work I admire so much. Right. Um, that's when I feel it. I'm like, we really, you think, I mean, when Glenn Keane asked me to help him with his movie, I'm like, you're Glenn Keane. I, I don't, you I don't know what I can bring to your thing. Or when the first time I, the first time I lectured at Pixar, I'm like, why do they want to talk to me? Like, they're fine. They don't, they don't need me. Um, but they're, they're, they're always trying to get better, right? They, and so they don't care where that comes from, right? Yeah, I mean, Pixar is a perfect example. Like, they need all the help they can get at all times. And it, because, like, they're constantly, it's Sisyphus for them. They're always, like, that's why their projects take as long as they do or did. Like, they, they just knew it wasn't good enough yet. You know, like right. they're always like, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. And they just keep pushing until it gets there. And then it's like, all right, now it's good enough. But, but yeah, they, 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 what a great example of, and it's probably like, we might be past the glory days of Pixar. I don't know. I, I don't know enough about that world. I know with like Pete doctor there, it's like they're in good hands and he's such a brilliant guy, but like to create what they've created, I did a, we did, we watched uh, all of their movies over the pandemic, kind uh -huh. of with the refresh of like, it had been a while since I hadn't seen some of them and been a while since I'd seen all of them. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable how good their films are. It, it's like, they're so right, you know, and, and just like, oh, that's how you tell a story. But knowing how much goes into that, how much they put into that, and how they need to have guys like you come in and talk to them. Like, it's a constant effort to improve. And it's not like, uh, like they're geniuses, but they're, they're human geniuses who just know how hard you have to work to make a good thing, you know? Right. So it's really just like, it's a, it's, it's a, a good, it's good that they also let people kind of see behind the curtain. Cause otherwise it would be like, well, you just be a genius and just work out for the world. Right. No, it's like a job that you have to go to and every day, story you know yeah think about character think about story think every single day yeah it's, it's and, and they're often often looking for that vulnerability in their work they're often oh, trying right. to find that that's the thing i think they're best at actually yeah even the, even the pieces where i think the stories aren't as good as some of the other ones of course they, i think they always go for an emotional truth yeah and you can see that especially in like the, the that's passed down like from it's handed down i heard 
I'm sorry, I forget his name, but the animator from Pixar that you had on your. Oh, uh, Ronnie Gil Carmen. Ronnie. Listening to Ronnie talk, it was so clear that like there's there's untraditional routes of like create becoming an artist or creative type um, and where you just kind of learn on the streets or whatever by doing. And then there's like kind of this institutionalized version of it where like knowledge is passed down literally like from one person to another, whether it be from school and then you get into the program at whatever animation studio and then you work your way up the ladder. But listening to Ronnie talk about how his journey was so was so great because it's it's tangible it's real it's like it's like it's like first you it's like building a camp uh you know first you dig the pit for your fire and right. then get the wood and like you just you can see how it's attainable it just takes the discipline of doing it and and there's no bullshit of like uh, uh where you get with kind of individual artists who are like i don't know i was just born with this gift i guess it's like, right. no you just fucking work you work at it and you, right. you think about it and you sit down every day and you do it and and you have smarter people around you to tell you you're doing it wrong you know mm-hmm. that, the, the, that is the secret <laughs> you know like to, yeah. <laughs> to making great work is you do it every day and you surround yourself with people who tell you aren't doing it right mm-hmm. that's, that's and you get better every day and so it's really um uh looking at places like pixar and and looking at it's systematic creativity. It's helpful, I find, for individual creativity and a reminder of the, the work ethic that can be lost when you're your own boss. Right. And that, that to me, is always, like, helpful to look at a place like Pixar or, or, you know, Disney Imagineering or places that are constantly, like, trying, but they're, like, in a box, but they're in a box where they have to do the thing that you're trying to do. So it's like a dojo that they have to go to every day and punch a wall. Yeah. And, and it's like, it, it, the work is really what matters and, and putting in the time and the effort and stuff. So it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's uh, no, I, th- I think, I, yeah, there is something when they talk about the work. Yeah, you're right. It makes it, you're like, Oh, well I can work hard. I can do that. Right. right. <laughs> you right. know, right, right, right. Um, and to hear about people's um, sometimes their um, their fears about it or how they felt like they weren't measuring up. Ronnie talks about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ronnie's great at what he does, but, you know, he he didn't know that yet. Right. <laughs> and he right. probably still doesn't know it on some level. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's no, something yet. they can't. Yeah. You because you can almost always point to somebody they can be dead right right and you go well if i could just do what they do you know um and and i think it's important to have uh, a horizon that moves right yeah right you can't get there you're never gonna get there yeah that's really important yeah yeah i found too that i found that was true um i learned that in my 20s uh was when i started to learn that um, when I started to meet some of these guys that I idolized but never met, and um, and technically, I just mean like technique, pure yeah. pure pure skill and technique. I, I I had seen footage of these guys or or read about them, and I uh, I 
uh, tried to emulate them or tried to at least aspire to the greatness that they were, you know, and uh, that I thought they were. And then I'd meet them and technically speaking, my hands were so far ahead of theirs mm. that it was alarming to me. Yeah, I know that feeling. What I realized was that I was, I was chasing the projected version of them, like the, the idealized version of what they could do. Or it's like I was, I was replicating the good take, you know, right. the, the right. one good take. It's like see, seeing a guy shoot, you know, two shots from half court and nailing both of them and being like, well, that guy can just do that. It's like, <laughs> right. well, no, like shot it a hundred times and right. they, they aired those two. I, I believed you could just do that and then tried to do that and then got to the point where that was the type of things that like my hands were doing is with things that like should you could you, other guys I would show them and they didn't, I would show them things I thought they could do and they couldn't because that's exactly what happened to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. That happened to me with, uh, particularly with screenwriting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They'd be like, Oh, I never, I didn't. It's like, Really? Because I learned it from you. You didn't know. You, <laughs> you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know. No, I just, you know, um, yeah, I, I found that several times. Yeah, but it's good to have those sort of aspirational, you know, things and, and, and surpassing, you not knowing that you're surpassing where they were because you, you put them at such a high place in your mind and you forget that they're human. You know, you forget that they're, they're right. not they're not capable because like i don't know you know i i can't imagine what someone like lebron james thinks of michael jordan you know right. and no matter how good lebron gets he'll probably never think he's better than michael jordan right maybe i'm wrong about this I, well I, here's I, here's, I the, here's the thing about that though like if you think about how nobody could break the three minute mile right right and then somebody broke it yeah and then other people could break it and, and yeah. it could be faster. But, but it was seen as impossible. In my mind, the first person to break it is still the fastest. I get that. I totally get that. Right? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's kind of why the Mars, if people land on Mars, it will never be the people landing on the moon. Right. Because that was so, and, and, and to that point, if you watch Ken Burns' Brooklyn Bridge documentary, which is, mm -hmm. You know, talk about storytelling. Oh, yeah, he's great at it, yeah. There's a woman who's, who, who uh, was at the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge who lived long enough to see the, the moon landing. Wow. And, and at the end, so yeah, she was old by the right, time it yeah. happened, but so she watched the moon landing and everyone was, was, you know, oh, my God, we landed on the moon. And she's like, ah, this is nothing. You should have been there when we opened the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. Because that, that leap... Of, of building that bridge was so far beyond yeah. our comprehension of, of engineering and what's possible that when it happened, people were walking on water. They were, it was aliens, you know, yeah. had built something for us. And then, so the moon landing was like, eh, you should have been there. And I think the Mars landing will be the same. Like, eh, you should have been there when we landed on the moon. You know, you know I, I, I often think about that when, uh, you know, my, my friend Stuart, his family had been in the movie business since the beginning of the movie business. So his uncle was Adolf Zucker who uh, created Paramount. So they were they were in the movie business when the movie business was just looking into a thing and turning a corner. Like they, it wasn't a business yet, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they got in really early, 
Um, and in fact, he, he had, uh, Stuart had uncles and cousins and stuff that would, um, like they would build like a, a theater, almost like it was a train and then they would show train footage and his uncles would like sort of shake the, the theater that they were watching, you know, so that people felt like they were on a train and, oh, wow. and you know, but in the early days of film, people, they, they weren't used to seeing pictures move. So if a train was coming at you, that train was coming at you, sure, and it, sure. you know, um, they were going to get wet if there were waves. And, and I think, oh, we can never have that experience. Like nothing could be as amazing as being the first people to see pictures move. Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, it was, it, and it was the death of magicians. It right. Was, it was, it, it was, that was the thing, you know, if, if we were to look at a timeline and go like, when did magic stop being relevant? It was the invention of, of the moving picture because there's nothing more magical. Like you can't do anything more magical than what we could do on film. Uh, right. and so, and, and we can show it in a dozen places at once. So right. it just, it, it was an instant replacement for the modern magician. Yeah, it's true. But it forced magicians to change. No, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, I wish, I wish that was true, but yeah. Uh, I think it's true to some degree. It might've been a slow boat, you yeah. know, turning. They're, they're, they're trying. They're, they're not, now they're realizing other things need to, um, other things need to happen. I mean, the real, uh, you know, there, there have been benchmark breakthroughs and stuff, but it's usually, it's usually like individuals who make it about something that's larger than in the effects. Here's what I'm going to say about you. Hmm. You broke the three minute mile. Oh, thanks. I think I that I didn't know I was running it. I didn't know I was running it. But, but I, I do think that you're going to be a person who let people know what's possible. Hmm. And you're going to see, I think at first, a lot of imitators mm -hmm. and then some innovators. That's what I think. I mean, yeah, I hope I hope it's able to open up what's what's possible for people and, and uh liberate some of the chains that we, you know, were shackled by as as you know, people felt limited to what they can do. Maybe they, they feel a little less limited in what they can explore with the craft that they have. That would be nice. Yeah. I, th I think that you really did open that door. So oh, I just want, I, I want to say that to you and I could talk to you forever, but uh, I'm sure I kept you longer than you, <laughs> you had planned. It's great talking to you. I, I love talking to you. I wish we did it more. Um, and, and I couldn't be happier for all your success and uh, notoriety and you deserve all of it. Um, and it, it really couldn't happen to a nicer human being. And, and uh, the little bit I do know you, I got to know you a little bit more reading your book. And I just, uh, it's like, I really like this guy. And uh, that, was, uh, okay. that was, that was true from the first meeting that there was something, um, just a, a genuine, kind, um, thoughtful human being. Well, I appreciate that. This this wasn't an official stop on my press tour, so like I'm only here because of you and yeah. and and the, and the respect I have for you and your work and and who you are. So I appreciate you saying that. Oh, thank you, Derek. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Oh, no problem. Uh, and and you know uh, I can't wait to uh, talk to you again. Yeah, I can't either. All right. Well, thank uh, you, Brian. So thank you. Thanks for watching You Are a Storyteller. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.